Um, when you think about uh, in, in the book of Samuel, like First and Second Samuel uh, together, when you're considering it or you're studying it, uh, you, you do understand, sometimes uh, we forget, but you, you remember uh, that we said one of the main themes is God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that a lot of the situations that David finds himself in, when we look at the kingdom that he is a part of, that, he, that God is establishing through him, it, it's really uh, one of those things where you, you look at it and you realize uh, it's very small. And uh, as a result of it being small, uh, you think that it's not very powerful. Uh, because uh, somebody just looking at it might say, well, that's nothing. The problem is, is that it's something very great because of who's behind it. And although it may be in appearance very small and weak and not very uh, 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 capable of, of doing anything, in reality, behind it is God. Behind it is the promise of God who never lies. And when he says something, it always comes to pass. And so there are kind of multiple ways that people respond. And it really depends on kind of what maybe the kingdom looks like. It's kind of like in certain situations. If someone looks at someone and says, oh, they're a weak leader. I can run over them. Or if somebody says, oh, that's not a very strong team. We're going to overcome them. Or, or whatever that is. You have all these things where you think, you look at it and you kind of think about it and you're like, ah, that's not very strong. They're not very great. That's not going anywhere. That's not very big. And yet you don't really realize sometimes what's behind it. Well, when God's behind something and he makes a promise, it does not matter what humans think about it and what they look at and kind of how they consider it. Now, what's happened here with what we're studying is, is we realize that people reject God's kingdom. They're still in the business of doing that. Like, people are still doing that. They're still resisting. People are still pushing back. People are still grumbling against God's kingdom. People are still thinking of ways to undermine God's kingdom. That's just a reality. So sometimes it's like an onslaught. And you say, they're going to war against it. I mean, blood is being spilled over the kingdom. Sometimes it's something like, it's political. So that people think like, well, if I, I mean... Sometimes in these, not just large churches, one church, but in these larger institutions, there are big political things that are going on. And people are like using their money, their social power or whatever, and they're shifting things around. Like It's like a chessboard of moving things around, and people are kind of doing things like that. Sometimes... Uh, someone gets into a place of authority and in order to preserve it they will undermine the very kingdom that they say they're a part of that's just the nature of things and you have to understand that when you're thinking about like this whole idea of what's going on in the kingdom that that God is establishing that God has promised to establish 
When you look at this situation, you think, good night. Everything's against it. There are enemies on every side. There's enemies within. You know, it's like all around you. And so that's kind of uh, something I think that we need to think about. And also, I, I just think it's important for us just to, when we think about kingdoms or governments or whatever, all you have to do is study history, spend a little time reading the newspaper, watching the news if you do that, and, and you realize that all of that that's going on, people are doing stuff like that. There are still wars. There are still political things going on where people are doing this and that. And there are still people within an organization that's seeking to undermine it, whether on purpose or just by not making a wise decision. That's going on. Like we see it, we've observed it. Some of you may say, I've seen it in the church. When I was a kid, I was in this church one time, and they got into a fight. There was this big war. Like before I, I really thought they were going to throw the gloves off and like, like bat it out. Like they're going to fight it out. Like you could have just put a ring inside that church so that when people got mad at each other, they could like fight it out. That kind of stuff kind of is something you just have to be aware of. It, it, it's it's um, it's all around us. It's within us. So on an individual level today, I think we do have to ask ourselves, are we submitting to Christ's rule? Really? Are you submitting to His rule? Are you yielding to His rule? Are you... Are you wrecking? And see, the reason that you would submit to, to Christ's rule in your life, it, the reason you would is because you think it is the best. It, it, his authority over you is the best thing for you. So I, I think you have to kind of ask yourselves, are we submitting to His rule? Um, or are we... Have we even like kind of begin to think of the church as one more power play or one more thing that I have to control? Or do I think of the church and I think about like if something changed here, something we did something different, like my position would be lost, like I would be not be able to do what I presently do. We kind of get it all tied up there. Sometimes we can't even really see what's going on in our hearts but I think on an individual level we have to recognize where we are what God is doing what he promises to do and then submit our lives to that and 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 do so with joy because we know there's dangers with our thoughts words and deeds where we are kind of using everything that we have to manipulate or take advantage of uh, something and so instead, we need to put on the armor of God and stand firm together. Um, it would be better, Jesus said, for you to tie, tie a millstone, uh, millstone around your neck and be cast into the sea than to like somehow cause trouble for one of his people or to hurt something that God is doing with his people. And so I just think it's important for us to consider that. Um, in grace, we must fight against that. We must know that the promise of God stands. His kingdom is forever. 
And we want to join in that, not oppose it, not stand against it. Okay, so let's take a little review where we've been in 2 Samuel. Remember, Saul was king, and due to his rebellion, he's rejected as king. He ultimately dies. David has been anointed king. Uh, he, he takes on the office in Judah, but not in the whole of Israel. And so um, there, there's kind of this thing of, of uh, he's this little small thing hidden in Judah is, is growing into something, but it's just not there yet. Um, and so um, what happens is, right as he's being anointed in Judah, and the idea is it should expand, uh, Saul's uh, commander, Abner, uh, takes uh, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and makes him king over all of Israel. And so today, we will see the end of Abner and his rebellion, his resistance to the kingdom that's being established. And we'll see that uh, take place. So we're going to cover a lot of verses and, and check that out together. So let's, before we do, I want you to look at 2 Samuel 3, 9 and 10. Just glance at that with me real quick. And then we'll look at 3, 18. And this is what, this is kind of, and I probably wouldn't have thought of it this way, uh, this one commentator, and I've quoted him often, Davis kind of points this out and brings it out in a very clear way. But 2 Samuel 3, 9, and 10. Look at, look at that real quick. It says, God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Then in verse 18, Now then bring it about, for the Lord promised David, saying... By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So here's the big thing. God made a promise to David. And no power of hell or scheme of man is going to take that away. God made a promise and it stands. His kingdom will stand. It's one of those things where you say, like, it does not matter how small it may look. It doesn't matter if you kind of look around and say, we could, like, topple that easily. It's so small and insignificant. There, we, It's all of Israel against that one tribe, and it's just, they, they can't stand against us. But the only thing that really changes everything is God made a promise, and it will stand. What's crazy is the guy that's a part of the, the biggest part of that resistance there, Abner, is the very man that knows God made a promise. He knows it. it it's, it's insane. You think, this is insane. Do you know what's crazy? I've had people say to me, I, I believe that Jesus came. I believe Jesus died. I believe Jesus was raised victorious over the grave. I believe He's the Savior of the world. And you'll say, then why not submit to His rule? I mean, you say you believe all this stuff like you're quoting what the Scripture's about. You just summarized the message, the hope of the ages. Why not submit to His rule and start living under His authority? It, it kind of like shocks you when you watch that, but you see it. 
over and over and over again. And it's something we must consider even in our own lives to think, what are we doing if we know this truth? Why do we not live in light of it? So God's promise, this is kind of the thrust of this. God's promise will stand regardless of who seeks to resist it. it it's just, it's going to stand. It doesn't matter who tries to undermine it. So we're going to check that out. We'll move through it um, step by step. But I want you to look at 2 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 32. So the first thing here is to say, I'm going to resist it by force, by military might. That's kind of what you see here. It's, um, you know that like David is now anointed, like I said, as king. Ishbosheth is now also king, kind of. And they're, they're both kind of like two, one big kingdom, but two separate kings is kind of the picture over different areas. But what we're going to see as you get started, and you can just kind of glance at this as you move through, um, there's this uh, picture here of what's taking place. In the first part, you're going to see, it starts by this. Abner says, you know what? Why don't we get into a little fight? And they get into this, this um, skirmish, if you will. Twelve, they chose 12 on this side, 12 on the other. This kingdom's represented by this 12. This re kingdom's represented by the other 12. And almost like they go in to fight each other, and they get into it, and all 12 on each side die. That's the first step into this. And then... You know, when you keep kind of moving forward, and that's in verse 16, you see, you know, each person dies. The second kind of scene is there's this foot race between uh, Asael and Abner. And he is like running from Abner. And so what happens is, I mean, he's, he's running after Abner. And so there's this man on part of David's kingdom running after Abner, who's the leader of uh, Saul's kind of kingdom. And he's chasing after him. And so as Abner's not as fast as the other man. And so Abner turns around and says, is that you? And he said, yes. And he says, stop chasing me. And he won't stop chasing him. So he takes him and he kills him. That's kind of another scene. The third scene in verse 26 and 27, Abner kind of starts whining to Joab, who's the leader of David's men. And he says, uh, how could you not like let up? Remember, we just started... It was a simple thing. We were just going to, 12 of your men, 12 of my men, they were going to fight. Now, my brother's chasing after you, and you kill him, and, and all this is going on, and you see this kind of unfold before you. And so there's basically kind of a picture of war. You're going to resist the kingdom by force. You're going to go against um, what God is doing. And that's kind of what you see kind of on display here, and it's very clearly pictured and what you find out is Abner the, the one in part of, of Saul's kingdom he's beaten uh, while David is um, growing stronger so that's the picture that that's where we are in this text now again we have to ask ourselves like do people do that today do they reject God's kingdom today or even sometimes you might even say, are there people that claim to be a part of God's kingdom that are adamantly opposed to it? 
There are a lot of places today where if you said, this is what the church has taught for, throughout the ages, they would reject it. They would rejoicingly reject it. That, that's going on across our country where many denominations are moving away from the things that they once stood fast to. And so we are seeing that on display. We are seeing people who are claiming to be a part of what God is doing at some level. Um, in this idea, it would be like we're the part of Israel, but yet rejecting it by force, like warring against God's word. Really, in the spirit of the Antichrist, they are going against the truth. That, that's kind of the picture. And it's something that we see. It is something that you have to be aware of. I mean, it's something we have to think of and think about. And just because you say that you're like committed to Christ's kingdom does not mean that you are really a, a part of it. You may be warring against it. And people are all, I mean, literally, there are churches, uh, lots of churches, uh, in rebellion against Christ's kingdom and his rule over the church. And then sometimes there are individuals, again, who would say something like, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, but I don't love the local church. And I would say, you're at war. You're at war. Against what Christ has promised to do. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you're warring against it. Why would you live in rebellion to that? What would make you think that that was a good option to say clearly when you see in Scripture Christ has promised to build his church to say, but I'm not going to join in that. What is that? I mean, it sounds more like in 1 John where it says they went out from us because they were not really of us. I mean, it sounds like they're going against the very thing Christ is doing. It doesn't sound like a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It sounds more like claiming to know God but denying Him. So God's promise will stand. As I would say, Jesus is going to build his church. God's promise is going to stand. The, the kingdom will be established. And resisting the kingdom by force will not work. It left Abner saying, let up. Surely you're not going to kill all of us. Because his resistance, he was incapable of standing against it, even though David and his men were small in number. He could not stand against the promise of God. Joab basically said to him, who was the leader of David's army, why didn't you keep your mouth shut? Why did you pick a fight? If you didn't want it to come on you, a, a heavy hand to come upon you, why did you stir up a fight? Second thing. 
God's promise will stand, but sometimes people will begin to seek the kingdom out of some sense of like, it seems like it's a necessity. I've got to do that. I've got to join with these people. They're getting so strong. You look at 2 Samuel 3.1. There, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger. So this is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. While the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So you're watching. If, if you started out, you know... Um, like reading Second Samuel, you think David's little group isn't that sweet. Look how small they are. Look at that little mustard seed. It's not going to become anything. Nothing's going to happen with that. It's too small. It's kind of like looking at the 12 disciples and you're saying like, they're not going to impact the world. It's too small. It's too little. And so... Over time, we're watching this, God is empowering this small little seed and growing it into something great. But it doesn't appear that way. But So the first thing is, you see with Abner, we're going to fight him. Then he's like, we tried fighting him. We all ran back home. We can't fight that. It is actually stronger than it appears to be. So then the other option would be something like this. Can I join in with it? Verse 8 of chapter 3. Then Abner was very angry. Now this is what happens. I, I, I kind of skipped a couple things here. What happens is Abner's uh, working in Saul's you know, family's kingdom or whatever. He puts Ishbosheth up as king. But he's really growing strong himself inside of Saul's kind of kingdom that's left over after Saul dies. And uh, actually, he decides that he wants to take one of Saul's concubines for himself. He ev evidently does that. And Ishbosheth says, what are you doing taking my dad's concubine? That's just wrong. It may have been, even been kind of a power play to say, I'm going to really like eventually kind of push Ishbosheth aside and take the kingdom. So when Ishbosheth says to Abner, like, what are you doing? He's like, you're going to speak to me that way? After everything I've done for your family, you're coming to me and questioning this? I wouldn't do that. I, you know, that's crazy. And so he gets really angry and he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go align myself with David. And I want to make sure that everything in David's kingdom, I mean, in Saul's kingdom, is given over to David. And that's what he says. And he, that's when he quotes that thing of like, hey, that's going to happen anyway. And so Abner's coming in, in, in a sense, moving in towards the kingdom that God's establishing out of necessity. It's a wise political move. It's the only kind of way that he's really going to get anything out of this whole deal. And so, that's kind of what you see here. Um, Calvin states, Abner seeks the kingdom not because it's a matter of divine promise, but because it is now a piece of sharp policy. Not love for Yahweh's design, but concern over Abner's position is all that matters to him. I remember a few, it was when I was really young, there was this guy that um, uh, wanted to run for a political office 
And uh, I remember talking to someone. They said, yeah, he started teaching like youth Sunday school, like a, a prominent church, because it looks good. Like the people, you got to kind of, you know, it, it looked good on his resume or whatever to make sure that he could kind of get into this great place or what you know and, and be in a good position um, you see that in the book of Acts where y'all remember this Simon the magician in the book of Acts and he's like hey uh, I want to join in he's like hey and he says can I buy some of that like whatever power y'all have I need to buy some of that I, I need to stay close to that I mean there's a lot of different places where you kind of think about people and, and they they really are aligning they're setting themselves up to be a part of the church sometimes or in this case the kingdom to ensure their place it kind of gives them a place of authority and, and and honestly I mean people love to have uh, these positions and, and and people like to exalt them they like to say oh yeah so-and-so's really moving up you know and this kind of thing and look at the title he has or all those kinds of things that go on and and this is even danger dangerous in the preacher kind of realm where that becomes the deal it's like you're moving up you're moving on up it's just kind of a step-by-step process and what you have to do is really guard your heart uh, because it is one of those things that's very tempting um, you, you might say, first, I'm just going to war against it. You say, well, that doesn't work. I'm going to join in for all the wrong reasons. It's not really entering in. It, it's, it's almost like he's wanting to be a part of it for all the wrong reasons. He knows what's about to take place, and so he's going to ensure that he gets in. It's like jumping parties. You know, at just the right time, kind of, would be the way you'd think of it. So God's promise is going to stand even though people are resisting it by force or seeking to get into it kind of by necessity and playing this game politically almost. The third thing you see is in Second Samuel 3, verses 12 through 39. This is a really long um, section. And it, it, it kind of, it is hard to kind of put together exactly what all's going on. But I'll tell you real quick, and then we'll talk about what it's all about. Abner offers David all of Israel, and David makes a demand. And the demand he makes is, I want my wife back from Saul's house. You know, his daughter. I want her back. Abner contacts men of Israel to join David, and David uh, dismisses Abner in peace. It's almost like he gives him peace he's saying like hey we're not going to do anything ugly to you get all Israel to come in we will kind of bring you into uh, the fold or whatever Abner departs and Joab hears about it and he gets really angry Abner returns through you know the means that was used by Joab and um, he's killed and David is completely unaware finally Abner's funeral and David's defense that he didn't know what was going on so that's a, that's a lot of stuff, but I just, you got to keep thinking about this. God makes a promise to David and it will stand. Some people resist it by war. They're just going to fight against it. Some people kind of seek the kingdom by necessity. It's like, man, eh, that's a good political move right now. We got to get in here and get, get a part of that. Catch the wave of what's going on in this kingdom. Third is kind of like... Um, 
the way this one man describes it is subverting the kingdom by revenge. It's kind of the idea of undermining the kingdom. So, what's that all about? Ultimately, I think what's taking place here, David certainly, his kingdom is being established. He's going to be the king of all of Israel as a result of what is taking place. But there's some dark things that are happening behind the scenes. Joab kills Abner. Why does he do that? What motivates him? Well, his brother was killed, but possibly even more. He probably was afraid of what would be taking place. What was going to take place if Abner had a place in the kingdom. Joab had been David's right-hand man. He was, the, he, was, he was really his general, you could say. And now Abner's coming in, another general, and they are going to come face-to-face with one another, and someone will have to be end up being the leader. And so there very likely is some things there That are going on. And so very likely you could say. That Joab had dual reasons for killing Abner. He wanted to kill him. Because his brother had been killed. But he also wanted to kill him. Because there was going to be a conflict. And somebody was going to rise to the top. So you could say. Sometimes we might undermine God's kingdom. When we think we might lose our position. We could fight against it like within. We could tear it down from within because we want so badly to have a place. I, I think sometimes for people like if, if they thought they were going to lose the place, they wouldn't even want to be in a church. Because that position had become such a big part of their life. It's like Gollum and the Lord of the Rings. The position begins to possess. And it happens over and over and over again. So. What do we do with all of this? I think we ask ourselves about, why, why, are, why are we here? Why, do, why are you here? Are, are you, are you, when you think about Christ's kingdom, what is it really all about for you? Are, are you living in submission to His kingdom? Are you on His side? Are you sitting under Christ and are you submitting to Him? Are you living your life in such a way where you're not at war against the kingdom, but rather at peace with the kingdom? Are you, are you, have you accepted the peace that comes to us through Christ? Have you bowed yourself before Him? Have you put down your sword of fighting against Him? Are you no longer an enemy, but rather been welcomed in as a son by faith? Are you someone that sometimes finds yourself Wanting to be a part of the church for all the wrong reasons. Longing to be a part of it because, you know, it, it's some advantage for you. It's a good place for you to be. It's a good place for your kids to be. It's a good place for you to, um, uh, you know, have the right connections. Could that ever motivate you? Or is it truly a desire not to kind of be a part of it for all the wrong reasons, but for all the right reasons? To serve Christ, to serve his people, to bless them. Thirdly, like, do you ever find yourself, and this is just something we have to consider, do I ever find myself wanting to hold on to my position so strongly that I would, like, you know, assassinate someone else's character? That's scary, but that does happen. 
You might say, well, that's not happening in our church. And, 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 and I, I don't know. I mean, I can't always read everybody's heart. But you always have to say, like, even if it's not something that you feel like is presently happening here, you always have to be aware that something like that could happen. And if it does, it has these unbelievable results. Scary things could happen as a result. So what do we say? Christ's promise stands. His kingdom is forever. He, he will reign forever and ever. And in whatever way that we go about, like somehow resisting, pushing against his kingdom, moving away from truly embracing it holistically, whenever we do that, it is to our own demise. It is foolish. It is faithless. It is heartless. It is hopeless. And so I encourage you today, embrace it holistically. Embrace it for the right reasons. Treasure Him above all. Submit to His Lordship. Walk in His kingdom as a faithful servant and son.